Faye, I don't know about you, but I've been out on the road now for some of these MFM fellowship interviews, and I got to say, one thing that I'm nervous about is I don't really know how to ultrasound. Nick, I don't know how to ultrasound either, I, but I guess they're going to teach us how to do that in MFM fellowship. But good news for us, we may have a leg up because we've been using the OBG Project's second trimester ultrasound atlas. That's right. I've been able to take a look and figure out what normal looks like thanks to the second trimester atlas that has tons and tons of pictures online. So that way you know exactly what you're supposed to be looking for. And also, if it's not normal, you know exactly what you're not supposed to be looking for. I know that I will be definitely using this also during MFM Fellowship. So if you want to also take a look at the OBG Project Second Trimester Ultrasound Atlas, which is super helpful, not just for MFM Fellows, but also for OBGYN residents, you can go ahead and go online and take a look. We'll be posting a link on our website. The Second Trimester Atlas comes along for free with OBG First. OBG First is the premium product from the OBG Project. It allows you to get clinical guidelines, updates, and summaries to your phone every single day, as well as saving it in a personalized library. Find out how you can get it from us for free if you're a fourth-year resident at www.creogsovercoffee.com. All right, guys. Welcome back. This is Faye. And this is Nick. And this is Creogs Over Coffee. So today we'll be talking about cervical cancer screening and prevention. Nick, what are the learning objectives for today? So today we'll start by talking about the background for and the importance of cervical cancer screening, as well as briefly describing the role of HPV testing and cervical cancer screening. Next, we're going to review the recommendations for screening in the general population and also in some special populations. And finally, we'll review the recommendations for HPV vaccination. What we won't touch on today, though, will be the actual results of a pap smear, things like the Bethesda classification, or the management of those results, um, but stay tuned for a future episode. Faye, do you know much about the history of a pap smear? The pap smear was invented by a Greek-American doctor named Georgios Papanikolaou, who began research uh, in 1923. Contemporaneously, the Romanian physician Oral Babis made a similar discovery, though his technique was different. Papa Nicolau's version was cheaper, and so it continues to live on to today. So Nick, after the invention of the pap smear, how has that impacted our health in the world today? It's actually pretty remarkable in terms of public health victories, I guess. You know, with the advent of widespread cervical cancer screening, the incidence of cervical cancer in the United States has rapidly decreased. There's been over a 50% reduction in the United States from 14.8 per 100,000 women in 1975 to 6.7 per 100,000 women in 2011. And a similar reduction in cervical cancer mortality has also been seen. Additionally, in the United States, just to again demonstrate the importance of cervical cancer screening, 50% of women who are diagnosed with cervical cancer these days have never had pap screening. And 10% of new diagnoses have not had cervical screening in the five years preceding their diagnosis. Unfortunately, cervical cancer is a disease that really reflects a lack of access to healthcare, and a sizable proportion of cervical cancer is found in underserved, poor, black and Hispanic populations. I think, though, that we can easily say, Faye, that the pap smear is a huge contributor to public health and cancer risk reduction. Absolutely. 
Let's talk about actual screening. Um, but before we get to the recommendations, one of the changes that's more recent is HPV screening. Do you know what do you know about that, Faye? HPV or human papillomavirus has been implicated in the majority of cases of cervical cancer, um, with two of the most oncogenic strains, 16 and 18, accounting for over 70% of the cases of cervical cancer worldwide. There are 12 other strains that account for the majority of the remaining cases. Given this, HPV testing has become part of routine screening since it was first described in the late 1990s, and it allows for further stratification of cervical cancer risk. And there's actually ongoing trials looking to evaluate whether HPV testing should supplant cytology as an initial screening. Now that we've talked about HPV, we've talked about the history of the pap smear, let's get on with the current screening recommendations. So Nick, what are these recommendations? Yeah, so the easiest way to review and remember these are to break them up by age. So I'll start um, with the less than 21-year-old population, and this one's pretty easy. So in women less than 21 years old, screening should not be performed, even in the presence of behavior-related risk factors. Um, some of those risk factors that are cited by ACOG include early sexual debut or multiple sexual partners. Why is that? Well, only one-tenth of a percent of cervical cancer cases occur before age 20. And women younger than 21 who have no immunocompromising condition generally clear HPV infection between 8 and 24 months after that exposure. What ACOG does recommend for this population they should have discussions with physicians about safe sex practices to avoid the exposure to STIs, including HPV, and also strong consideration for the HPV vaccination, which we'll talk more about later. Hey, what's our next age group? So our next age group are women from the ages of 21 to 29. So in these women, screening should be performed using cytology alone every three years. Annual screening is discouraged in this group as it exposes patients to a much more significant number of unnecessary procedures for minimal improvement in outcomes. HPV co-testing is not recommended. However, HPV reflex testing in the event of an ASCUS pap may be considered to determine need for a colposcopy. What about the next group, Nick? So our next group then are patients aged 30 to 65 years. And in this group, the recommendations can follow one of two strategies could perform screening with cytology alone every three years or cytology with HPV co-testing every five years. In this population, if you have both a negative cytology and a negative HPV co-test, the risk of developing CIN two to three over the next four to six years is extremely low, approximately 0.08% risk over the five-year period. The risk is higher, but also quite low with cytology alone screening, which is quoted at 0.26% over a five-year period. So this is the reason for the screening interval being extended with co-testing versus cytology alone. Randomized trials have demonstrated actually that co-testing has a number of distinct advantages in this population. Number one, co-testing has a higher detection rate of high-grade dysplasia in the first round of screening and decreases risk of CIN3 or cancer in subsequent screening. Basically, it's a more sensitive test for picking up higher-grade things rather than cytology alone on the first try. Next, co-testing has a better pickup rate for cervical adenocarcinomas as opposed to squamous cell carcinomas than cytology alone. 
The trials that evaluated this in particular were pretty heterogeneous, though, and had differing protocols for the management of HPV-positive results. So ACOG says that cytology alone remains acceptable as an alternative screening strategy, though, again, it does make the recommendation that if co-testing is available, that's probably what we should be using. Faye, what about our last population? So our last population are women greater than 65 years or women who are post a benign hysterectomy. So in these women, screening should be discontinued if they meet the following criteria. One, they have no history of CIN2 or greater or AIS in the preceding 20 years. And they have adequate prior negative results, meaning three consecutive negative cytology results within the last 10 years or two consecutive negative co-testing within the last 10 years, with the most recent test performed within the last five years. Women in this age group do get cervical cancer. However, the majority of these cases occur in women who are not screened or in those who are underscreened. Also, the changes of menopause may cause false positive pap tests in this group, leading to likely unnecessary additional and invasive testing and procedures. So, Nick, there are some populations where we do change some of these screening recommendations. Let's talk about those for a second. Yeah, so first, uh, some populations that don't merit changing to the screening recommendations, like really those behavioral risks that we mentioned earlier. Some of the things that ACOG states that do increase the likelihood of HPV acquisition or persistence, but don't alter screening recommendations include cigarette smoking, new or multiple sexual partners, or an early sexual debut. However, ACOG does mention that there are two populations that do merit changes to screening. The first that we don't really see anymore, Faye, but we'll talk about anyways, are women who had a in utero exposure to a chemical called diethylstilbestrol, or DES. Now, what is DES? I didn't know this until we started looking for this episode. I know it was something that we were supposed to ask, but I just didn't know what exactly to ask about. DES was an estrogen that was manufactured and prescribed in the United States during the 1930s up until 1971. And it was thought that this medication helped with though helped those who had a history of premature birth or a history of miscarriage Though by the 1950s, it had been demonstrated to be ineffective. It continued, though, to be prescribed up until 1971, and so women born in 1971 or before may have had exposure to DES. ACOG states that women who were exposed in utero to DES could have up to annual cytology as a reasonable screening strategy. Why is that? Well, cohort studies have demonstrated a much higher incidence of clear cell vaginal adenocarcinoma in women born to mothers who took DES during their pregnancy. DES has also been associated with a number of other health problems in men and women. Um, but again, for the purposes of this episode, we're talking only about cervical cancer screening. And for this population, it's really the clear cell adenocarcinoma of the vagina. On our website, you'll find a list of DES and its related medications online. Um, and there's also an interactive tool that the CDC has put together to help you and your patients determine if they may be at risk. Because again, Faye, I don't know about you, but I've never come across somebody who knows whether their mom was taking DES. I, I have not either. What's our second special population, Faye? Yeah. So the second group is women who have HIV or other immunocompromising conditions. These women are less readily able to clear HPV infections. Thus, the recommendation in this populations differ. And as we talked about in the HIV episodes, HIV is the best studied of these populations, and so recommendations are made within this population. 
So as a quick recap for HIV-infected patients, screening should begin within one year of sexual activity, even if this is before age 21, and should begin no later than age 21. In women less than 30, if the first screen is negative, it should be repeated in 12 months. Then, if three consecutive annual screens are normal, screening may be spaced out to regular intervals, such as every three years doing cytology. HPV co-testing, however, is not recommended. In women older than 30, three annual tests should be normal before moving to cytology alone or co-testing. Screening intervals should be every three years in this population, regardless of the method chosen. Then, screening should continue for the lifetime of the woman and not stop at age 65, as we would for women who do not have HIV or who are not immunocompromised. Let's pause here, Nick, and talk a little bit more about the HPV vaccination. I know we had a whole episode on vaccines, but let's discuss this a little bit more in depth here. Yeah, obviously, Faye and I are huge fans of vaccination, and the HPV vaccination is a similar story. Um, it really has been an incredible advance for primary prevention of cancer. The studies that have come out since, including some that are recent, have been demonstrating across-the-board reductions in HPV-related disease, um, not only cervical cancer, but even like ENT cancers, anal cancer. Um, it's pretty remarkable. Let's talk, though, about the vaccine itself. So there are three versions of the vaccine that have come out since its inception. There is a bivalent vaccine, a quadrivalent vaccine, and most recently, and probably most common to us, a nine-valent vaccine. All of these cover HPV types 16 and 18, again, those being the two most oncogenic strains. And the nine-valent vaccine covers up to 50% additional cases of cervical cancer over the bivalent vaccine. Now, in terms of recommendations for the nine-valent vaccine, currently it should be given to boys and girls aged 9 to 26. For those receiving their first dose before age 15, only two doses given six months apart are needed. And for those receiving it after age 15, three doses should be given at zero, one to two, and six months apart. Faye, though I know we said boys and girls aged 9 to 26, but there's some new evidence that's out there now, right? So in June 2019, the CDC's Advisory Council on Immunization Practices, or the ACIP, updated its HPV vaccination recommendations to extend recommendations for vaccinations for everyone up through the age of 45 after the FDA approved this in October of 2018. While this hasn't made it into the official ACOG practice guidelines yet, it's safe to say that this is probably forthcoming. And Faye, I guess one other question for you. What about HPV vaccination during pregnancy? Because I think like this is a great time for us to capture patients and get them vaccinated. Absolutely. So while the HPV vaccine is not recommended during pregnancy, an HCG screening is not necessary prior to initiating the dose. If pregnancy happens to interrupt the schedule, it should be resumed postpartum without need for redosing. Um, studies are currently ongoing to determine the safety of HPV vaccination during pregnancy. And for our practice currently, what we will do is we will actually give our patients the first dose of their HPV vaccine if they haven't gotten it while they're in the hospital immediately postpartum and then see them for their postpartum visit and give them their second dose at that time. Excellent. Well, Faye, I think that brings us to the end on this episode on cervical cancer screening. Why don't we try and wrap up? So we first talked about the history of the pap smear, which was invented first in 1923. And since the inception of widespread screening, cervical cancer really has rapidly decreased by almost 50%.
HPV screening came onto the scene in the 1990s um, and now is also part of the standard of care for particular populations. There are ongoing trials to look at whether HPV testing could supplant cytology as the initial screening test. We then went on to talk about screening recommendations. So in patients who are less than 21 years old, screening should not be performed even in the presence of behavior-related risk factors. In those aged 21 to 29 years, Screening should be performed using cytology alone every three years. From ages 30 to 65, screening should be performed with cytology alone every three years or HPV co-testing with cytology every five years. And in patients greater than 65 years old or who have had a hysterectomy for benign reasons, screening should be discontinued provided that there's been no history of CIN2 or greater in the preceding 20 years and that there are adequate negative prior testing results defined as either three consecutive negative cytology tests within the last 10 years or two consecutive negative co-test results within the past 10 years with the most recent test performed within the past five. There are certain populations that have changes to these screening recommendations, and those two include women who have in utero exposure to DES and patients who have HIV or are otherwise immunocompromised. In patients who have had in utero exposure to DES, annual cytology is recommended. In women with HIV, again, just as a quick recap, screening should begin within one year of sexual activity, even if that means before age 21. In women less than 30, if the first screen is negative, it should be repeated in 12 months, and three consecutive annual screens should be negative before being spaced to Q3 cytology. In women older than 30, same principles apply. You should have three annual tests that should be normal before moving to cytology alone or co-testing, and those screening intervals should be every three years in that population, regardless of whether you're doing co-testing or cytology. Screening should continue for the lifetime of the women and not stop at age 65. And finally, we talked about the HPV vaccine, which has three types, the bivalent, quadrivalent, and the nine-valent vaccines. Um, the nine-valent vaccine should be given to boys and girls ages 9 to 26. Before 15, two doses given six months apart. And for those after age 15, three doses given at zero, one to two, and six-month intervals. New recommendations have come out from the CDC recommending the HPV vaccine for all persons up through the age of 45. All right. So once again, I'm Nick. I'm Faye. And this has been Creogs Over Coffee. If you enjoyed this podcast, go ahead and go on iTunes, Spotify, Google Play, or any other podcatcher and give us a five-star rating and review. Find us on social media, on Twitter at CreogsOverCoff1, on Facebook at CreogsOverCoffee, on Instagram at CreogsOverCoffee, or if you want to get a cool shout-out on the show, some swag, or just feel like being a big supporter, find us on Patreon, www.patreon.com slash CreogsOverCoffee. Find something wrong with our current show or want to hear a specific episode? go ahead and give us an email, creogsovercoffee at gmail.com. Finally, you can find show notes and resources for every episode, including this one, on our website, www.creogsovercoffee.com.